Okay. All right. So we want to thank Jonathan and Tamar Miller, our series sponsors, who've dedicated the series in memory of Ted and Pauline Miller, Zichronim Levracha. Uh, thank you also to our sponsors for the month, Nate Malka and Avi Sternberg, sponsored in honor of this close of Living in Eretz Israel and for their anniversary month. Also, the sponsor of the Ilui Nishmas Nachum Shimon ben Rav Yitzchak Aryeh, uh, by his children and grandchildren, the Shamash Rabbin Aliyah, and sponsored by the Feigenbaum family, the Ilui Nishmas Chaim Yisachar ben Yechiel Zedel Dov, Zechonu Levracha, the Shamash Rabbin Aliyah. And also thank you to our weekly sponsors, uh, Itamar and Sarah Rosen, who sponsored in memory of Itamar's father, Avram Yitzchak ben Aaron, uh, whose yard is the 28th of ER. And to our daily sponsor, uh, Miriam and Avram Deutsch, who sponsored in memory of Avram's grandparents and family who perished in Auschwitz, Avram Abba ben Zachariah Vesara Bas Yosef Zev Zechonim Levrach. Okay. So just a couple of uh, practical notes. I apologize for the changing days, but next week, which is the last part of this mini-series, is on Tuesday night. I hope that's okay. Because on Monday night, the Rosh Tzirim High School has a father-daughter excursion to Tel Aviv. I don't know what, you know, I'm not sure what, what's going down on that. I just know it's going to be really long and I won't be here. But it'll be wonderful. Um, so that's next week, God willing, Tuesday night. And then uh, that's it for the series. But then right after Shavuos, it looks like we're going to be doing a Yorkside cheer on the Monday. Monday night, I think it's uh, is it June 5th, perhaps. But the Monday night after Shavuos in memory, we'll be doing a cheer in memory of Yal Miller's father, Rabbi Warhaftik. So, uh, okay, so that's what's upcoming. Now, last week, we, we were learning about Shaul's descent into jealousy and rage, and, and this, this week is when everything falls apart, right? And, and this is the week when David becomes a fugitive. So, if you look at number one, Shaul el Yonatan beno, of el kol So, Shaul says to Yonatan, his son, and to all of his servants, David. He tells them to kill David. Now it's, now it's direct. So here is Yonatan. Very good, right? But then it says his name again. In the same Pasuk, it says Yonatan, right? But Yonatan, you know, loved Shaul, right? We know this. So, right, it, it's very clear that this is... So this is the one time after his name is changed that he reverts back to Yonatan. So what do you think? Why here is his name reverting back to Yonatan? Because Shaul is, te- is telling him to do something terrible. He's telling him to murder. But then when he, ref- he, he refuses, right, He's, he doesn't follow his father's wish, and so he becomes Yonatan once again. And that's the only time that he goes back to being Yonatan for just a moment. Um, it, it's really something, right? So, so when he says to kill David, he doesn't mean at this point that the entire army has been informed that there's a, and now there's a most wanted ad, you know, on TV in the middle of all the TV shows that we have a fugitive on the loose, but rather, right, says, says the Matudas, David be'arma vishkaga, even though he's telling his servants and Yonatan to do this, it's still not a public thing. He's saying, do it, you know, secretly and make it seem like it's an accident, right? Yeah, there was, it was an accident, right? <laughs> Meaning something that I don't have anything to do with. Right? He, I want to keep my hands clean. You guys make sure that he gets killed. Make sure he's finished. Okay? So whereas last week we, were, we saw that Shaul was ashamed of his jealousy, he has moments where he's like embarrassed of it, you know, now he's talking openly to people in his court, at least, to his servants, about arranging David's death. Right? So this is one thing is you know, leading to the next. Right? 
Now, we see in, in Shira Shirim, there's a Pasuk, Simeni kachotam alibecha, kachotam alzroecha, set me as a seal on your heart, as a seal in your arm, ki aza kamavet ahava, for love is strong as death, right? That, that uh, makes me think of, I mean, not, not quite the same, but that line from Coming to America, right? There's a fine line between love and nausea. So is, is love like nausea or is it, you know, love is strong as death, right? Okay. But kashe kishaol kin'ah. And jealousy is as cruel as the grave. So says the Medrash, the rabbis say, ki aza kamavet ahava, right? Love as strong as death. That's the ahava she ahav Yonatan le David. That's the love that Yonatan had for, for David um, because he loved him right, as much as death, meaning as much as himself. Like he would have been willing to die for him. That's how much he loved David. And then kashe kishaol kin'ah, Right, jealousy is as uh, cruel as the grave. Right, that's referring, of course, to Shekana Shaul le David. Okay, this is uh, you know this is where we're at, and the and the balance between the two, and the contrast between the two, um, between Shaul and Yonatan. That's what we talked about really at the end of, of last week's shear, which is you know there's a choice for the people of Binyamin, as we'll see, we're going to develop this more. There's a choice to follow the path of Shaul or the path of Yonatan. Um, now, but, but Shaul did not grasp the depth of Yehonatan's friendship with David. He, di- he, didn't, he didn't understand it. He didn't see it. And so if you look at just number five to go through the Psukim, right, immediately Yehonatan tells David, he rats him out. He rats his father out. Right? Shaul, somehow he was blinded to this, that his son, his best friend, is David. Right? It's hard to, I guess because, I'm guessing it's because Yehonatan was also, at the same time, so loyal to his father. They were so close that his father never suspected that another person could have the loyalty of his son in the same way. But immediately, Yonatan tells David, and he says that my father wants to kill you. Right? right? So now, you know, hide in a secret place. You know, don't, don't uh, let yourself get killed. And I'll go and I'll talk to my father and, and try to deal with this issue. Right? So he went and he, he speaks well of David to his father. And he says, you know, don't sin against David. Not only has he not sinned, but he's, he's your loyal servant who's going and leading armies and killing our enemies. And he goes on, right? He's done so much good. So how could you possibly? Why would, don't, be, don't murder. It's murder. It's mamash murder. There's no reason to kill him. For no reason. And you see here, there's still, there's still good here in Shaul. And he says, right, he, he, he listens. Right, as Hashem lives, I will not put him to death. Right, so he, he pulls back. And then Yonatan is convinced. His father swears. This is not a small thing. And he, and he calls David, and, and it's amazing. Even though David knows that Shaul was planning to kill him, David comes back. Right, which is... Really extraordinary, right? But clearly, David is not safe. One has to, can only imagine what David is feeling at this moment. This is another one of those examples where we're told what happens, but we're not told how David feels. And can't imagine that David feels very secure or very happy about what's going on, knowing that, that his, his uh, father-in-law was planning to murder him, right? This is a complicated thing to learn with your father-in-law, Okay. But then we come, then it gets worse again. So David goes out and he kills a lot of uh, the plishtim. They flee before him. 
And of course, this military victory, instead of making Shaul happy, only leads to jealousy. Right? I mean, it's like the parallel to our time is so clear also. You know, we have these victories, but, th- but then we like snatch defeat out of the jaws of victory by, by then fighting over who gets the credit and who's important. And, you know, the generals become politicians. Somehow, maybe we got to stop that. I don't, you know, every, every general becomes a politician. Right? But that's, um, that's exactly what leads then to the next pasuk, and then an evil spirit comes because he's now he's jealous again. Again, I mean, you see how this goes on and on. Um, I'm trying not to dwell too much on the repetitive nature of it, but it, it, I mean, it's powerful. He's holding the spear in his hand, and David is playing next to him. And so he try right. He wants to to kill him with the spear. Um, but David is able to slip away, and the the chanit hits the wall. The spear hits the wall. But David and David flees and he escapes on that night. Okay, now he realizes it doesn't matter what he swore to his son. Right, he's coming. He's coming for me. So David goes into his house, right, with Michal, his wife, the king's daughter, and the house is surrounded by by soldiers, or at least by the by the entrance to the house. And the plan is to kill him in the morning. Now, David So Michal tells him, If you don't get out of here tonight, right, they're going to kill you in the morning when the day, daylight comes. So she takes, you know, she helps him go down through the window. Right, he escapes. Right? I mean, just look at that. Just amazing the, the, how tight the language is. He goes, right, he flees, and he escapes. Right? Again, no, none of the emotions. One can only imagine. They don't know if they'll ever see each other again. And yet, oh, it's just amazing how the Navi works. Right? It's just a few words. It's just so powerful how Hebrew captures so much in just a few short words. But then what does Michal do? Right? She pulls a Ferris Bueller's day off. Okay? It's like she saw the movie. Right? So she takes Trafim. Hamita. And she puts them in the bed, and she puts a kavir uh, izim on top, a quilt of goat hairs on, you know, at the head, and she covers it all with cloth, right, to make it look like he's sleeping in his bed. So they come to take David, right, they arrive to arrest him in the morning, and she says, oh, he's sick, to try to buy him more time, right? Ferris Bueller was sick too, I'm just saying, right? You see the connection, right? I mean, it's, it's unbelievable, right? It absolutely, it's only, what's amazing is that it's taken this long, and now it's happening, that there are many movies in the works. Um, this is actually something I have to be involved in at work, which is kind of cool. There are many movies in the works, high-level Christian movies that are being made about David. There's an animated movie that should come out 2025 on the level of Pixar, like that, but by, but by religious people in South Africa. Um, and then there's others who are doing, planning all sorts of biblical movies. They fought, I don't know, what took so long? If they're coming to kill him, what does it matter if he's sick? They can't take him. <laughs> right. Well, exactly. So before, then, before Salema, then they kill him. <laughs> right. So, but it seems like it buys a little bit of time because then they're a little confused. He's sick. What do we do? So they go back to Shaul, and then he sends them again. Maybe it's another fifteen minutes. I mean, who knows how how long? Right. 
And he says, Halu, Tova me, Tai So bring him on the bed. I don't care if he's sick. I don't care. I want to kill him. But that buys another, some more time, right? Michal, Michal outsmarts all these very brilliant soldiers of Shaul, right? And what do they come? They find, right, that it's, uh, that it's all a dummy, that it's not for real, that David has escaped. So now Shaul says to Michal, Lama kacha rimitani. Right? Why, why did you trick me? Right? I mean, how could you have done this to me, to deceive me this way? I mean, it's amazing that he says this without irony, to send my enemy. I just gave him to you as a husband, and now I've decided I'm going to kill him. And, and I'm shocked that you take, right? And also, she was so overwhelmed with love for him. As we said last week, never, no other place in Tanakh does it talk about a woman's love for a man. It must have been so unusual. Right? And, he, and he's shocked. Right? He's, he's, he's not, Shaul, the people who are closest to him are deceiving him. His son, his daughter, right? He's, and he's not picking up on it. He's not in a good place, right? He's not, he's not getting how all of these pieces are, are, are fitting together. So David, unbelievably loyal to Shaul, but, but at this point, right, it's over. At this point, it's over. And I think it was interesting. I highlighted Balai Lahahu, meaning we don't need Balai Lahahu, right? David Nas We know that he goes and he runs away at that moment. He runs away. Why are we told Balai Lahahu? I wonder if it's because we're now entering a new time, a time of Laila, right? It's a time of darkness in David's life. It was a very short-lived, happy moment there where he was the, the glorious war hero. Everybody was like, all the women are throwing flowers at him as he comes back from war, right? Everything's going great. And, it's, and he marries the king's daughter and then it's over, right? Incre- very, very quickly, he enters a time of Laila, right? And we have a lot of Tehillim, uh, that really st- that that speak to this. If you look at number seven, right? Look at this. Lamnatzeach al tashchit David michtam, right? This is a Tehillim, a Psalm of David. When bishloach Shaul vayishmeru tabayit lahamito. So whereas in in, in right, exactly meaning about this very night, right? He, there's a Tehillim. We know what he was feeling at this moment, right? Because in, in Sefer Shmuel, what we just read, it just says that he gets up, he runs, and he escapes. No emotion. But here in Tehillim. Right, it's expressed. Hashem, deliver me from my enemies. Right, set me in high from them that rise up against me. From you know, those the workers of iniquity, save me from the men of blood. Right, and we find here, right, David is the emotion. Right, I've done nothing wrong. All I've done was risk my life not just with Goliath, but with every war and every battle after that, on behalf of this man and behalf of my people, and this is my reward. I mean, how could he feel otherwise, right? That's how we know that David is a human being. He's a human being, right? And he says, right? Without my fault, they run and they prepare themselves to come and kill me, right? So, and then again, in, in, in 116, this is a theme that we find over and over and over, over and over again, Saravi agonim tsa, right? The death is encompassing me, right? I found trouble and sorrow. Uveshem Hashem ekra, ana Hashem maltanavshi. But I called upon the name of Hashem, right? Who's delivered my soul? I think we can't forget when we when we read Tehillim, right? We insert ourselves into these words as we are meant to, right? David is is has given us Tehillim so that we can feel that. But at the same time, we should remember the context of these Tehillim and, and how real the emotions were, how frightening his life was. This is just the first. Right, and not just—I mean, not just the first frightening moment, but just the first of his frightening moments as as a as a fugitive. Right, 
I'll sing to you, because you have been my high tower, you've been my refuge. You find this over and over again, that he, the, the incredible trust that he has in Hashem as he's running away, um, running for his life. Now, thinking about Michal for a little bit, right? this is uh, one of the main chapters where we read about Michal. Um, there's very little that we'll read about Michal until the end, which gets very, very negative, unfortunately. But, but we shouldn't lose sight of the greatness of Michal in this moment. Right? This moment, in retrospect, is clearly the greatest <coughs> act of Michal's life. Right? Later on, their relationship gets very painful and very messy, but it shouldn't take away from this particular moment. In the same way that we should look at Shaul. Right? Shaul's life becomes very dark and very messy, and we haven't even gotten to the bad stuff yet. There's some really bad stuff with Shaul towards the end. <coughs> but it shouldn't take away. Right? Hashem looks at everything, right? And it shouldn't take away from the greatness of Shaul and what he did accomplish. Um, you know, she chooses David over her father. And whereas she used to be, in, in the chapters that we learned last week, she was referred to as Michal Bat Shaul. How is she referred to now? Right? Pasuk number 11, Yudalef, Michal Ishto. Right? Just the, how careful, you see how the Navi is so precise. Um, now she's, she's left her father and she's, she, she's, she is David's wife um, and she, because she chose between them. Uh, and what's crazy is that at the end, at the very end of uh, their relationship, when, we, when David is king and she comes and she looks at him and she criticizes him, what is she called there? Michal Bat-Sha'ul. Bat-Sha'ul, right? because she's, rever- she's moved away from her husband and, and is defined and acts very much the way that her father acts with many of the same strengths, but also the same flaws. Um, so if you, look at, if you look at number 10, right, the Medrash uh, right, appreciates Michal. Matzah Isha Matzah Tov. Right, this is like the classic line about the great, a great woman. And who is a great woman? Zu Michal Bat Shaul. This is Michal. Because she loved David more than her father. Right? So, I don't know. When we look back at our own lives, are there gonna, is there going to be one moment? I'm not sure that most of us can say that. But in Michal's life, she can look back and say, this was the moment. Whatever happened later, she saved David. If not for Michal, there would be no David Amelech, there would be no Sefer Tehillim, there would be nothing. Right? So we shouldn't take it away from uh, anything from Michal. But at the very same time, if you look at the Psukim, there's a hint also to the painful future. So if, back in number, source number six, so this is Pasuk number 12, we only have one Pasuk about David's escape. And we're told there, David ba'ad She goes and brings him down, you know, by the, by the window. And then, number back to source number 11, this is what happens later. This is when David is coming with the Aron of Hashem into Yerushalayim. Wow. And she's Bat Shaul. Right? Now she's Bat Shaul by the Chalon. Right? So, meaning these are the, mo- the key moments of Michal's life, for good and for bad, are by the Chalon. And clearly that, the use of that word, right? It's all one book, say for Shmuel, right? It's the Christians who broke it into two. Um, the, the, clearly, the, the use of that word is meant to tie the two together so we could see the arc of Michal's life. And, and the truth is, her life follows, to a great degree, really the, the same arc of her father's life, which has started with greatness and Shaul and all the glory at the beginning and what he accomplished, and that it ends in tremendous sadness and tragedy, 
And the same thing happens with Michal. She starts off a heroine, and she ends off as a, as a tragedy. Um, from love to scorn, right? It's like, it's really, uh, it's really how, how sad that is, right? Maybe it's not a fine line between love and nausea. It's a fine line between love and scorn. That's the teaching of Michal. Jealousy in both cases. Right. They're both jealous. Exactly. So, now the story of the Trafim, about how she <laughs> pulls a Ferris Bueller, right? It's really fascinating. Because, of course, it is hinting to Rachel. And this we talked about when we learned, you know, earlier in Sefer Shoftim as well. I'm sorry, with uh, Chana and connected to Rachel as well. But the Trafim, and where we know immediately, Trafim, you think of Rachel. So what's the meaning of the connection between them? Um, you know, so what is, what is that all about? I mean, I think at a very basic level, we know that Rachel is the mother of Michal, right? Rachel is the mother of Yosef and Binyamin. And Binyamin, of course, is the tribe of Shaul and Michal. So there's already a family connection there. Um, now, what are the Trafim? So we did learn this already, you know, some, you know many, many months ago, but I'm, I don't know if anybody remembers, and it's worth remembering again just quickly. What are these Trafim? So number 13, 13 um, the Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer says something, you know, really amazing, right? Which is, he says, Omer Pirkei Rabbi Eliezer, Ma'u Trafim, Ahayushochtinadan, they would kill, they would slaughter a person, and then they would be chotchinoto and cut him up in molchinoto b'melach. And they, they would somehow like preserve him like, like a pickle with salt. And the, and the head became shrunken, right? With melach u'besamim, salt and, and spices. And then v'kotvin al tashel zahav sheim ruach tuma. And then they would, uh, you know, the, these embalmed shrunken heads were on the wall. And then they would have like names of of. Uh, of of spirits or demons, you know, on a golden thread that was put under their tongues. Tachat klelashono, nin otobakir, madlikin lefan of ner, and they'd light, light a, a candle in front of it. Sounds like a really creepy movie, right? I mean, it's like hard to believe this stuff was real at, at some point. Umishachavimlo, and they'd bow down to it. Vuhumidaber, kedichtiva trafim dibru avon, right? They, and, and then it would, it would speak, right? They would hear voices coming from the mouth of this shrunken head, which is, so this is an idolatrous thing. What's it doing in the That's what I was just about to say. They told him that she stole from her father. So this is a good question, right? So it's hard to understand. Is this real? I can't, I can't, right? You can't really imagine. I don't, so there's only one view as to what Trafim are. There's only one view. But I, I wanted to, to remember it because as Rashi and Rashbam and Shadal, right? This is the next few sources, right? So Rashi says that she took these, that she took these Trafim, Rachel took them so that her father Lavan would not use them. But the Rashbam says, right, a little something much murkier. And this is, uh, if, if this is an insult to Rachel Imenu, we, you know, it's Rashbam's fault, it's not mine. Right, because she was afraid that, Lavan, that they would talk to Lavan and tell him where they went. Right, because Yaakov wanted to run away with the family. So she, so what does that mean? That means she, she thought that they had some power of some sort, right? Um, and Shadal says... Why is that problematic? We believe in Kishu. So let's see what he said. You're right. It's, 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 not, it's not terribly... It's, it's not problematic on the level of Avodah Zara, right? She was not an idolater, says Shadal. So let's see what he says. Rachel Ganavtam, ki he'emina behem. She believed that they had some sort of power. Afalpi shalohaita uvedet Avodah Zara. 
even though she was not an idol worshiper. We're not saying Rachel was an idol worshiper. She thought that they were like lots of some sort, some sort of, like you said, a kishuf, but it's not, you know, she didn't worship them, uh, but she thought that there could be some sort of, uh, some sort of truth that comes out there, right? And, and I guess, you know, we'll, we'll have to address this. I haven't really gotten to this or prepared this yet, but when we get to when, when Shaul brings up the spirit of Shmuel from the grave, right? Meaning there is something to this kind of stuff, right? That, 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 right? There was a power there. Um, so the, the trafim were composed of many parts. They'd shake it and all sorts of, who knows what they did, right? So according to Shadal, it's not quite like what Rashbam says, that they, that they believed it was talking to them, whether they would shake it and if it would move this way, that maybe it would have, you know, it implied uh, that something might happen. Right, like a magic eight ball, right? Just a really gross magic eight ball. Um, right? Or that God was, was sending them a message. So that doesn't necessarily have to be a Vodazara, but it could be that, you know, also what Shaul did wasn't necessarily a Vodazara. He was looking for, he believed in Hashem and wanted to bring Shmuel back. Um, and this was the only way he knew how to do it. Right. So it depends. If you think that it's coming from God, then it's not a Vodazara. It's not necessarily okay, right? But it, but it, right? Because Kishof is not is forbidden, but it's not a Vodazara. If you think that it's coming from a, a different God, some other God, then it then it certainly qualifies as a Vodazara. Now. So, exactly. So, we're not here to judge Rachel, but I do wonder, and, uh, and this is just a speculation, right? According to this view of what the Trafim are, which is probably not the shot that this is what Michal had in her, in her house. Why? It was David's house. What, do you think David had Trafim like this? And it was also it was in the shape of a dummy, right? Right. It doesn't, it's hard to imagine there were shrunken heads under the, under the blanket. Right? It's like very hard to imagine. Maybe there was a redata de rote in They used to be far more elaborate. And they just they changed. They got more banal. Right. So I, so I think likely we'll, we'll, we'll do another explanation of trafim, which I think makes much more sense. But assuming this is not the same trafim, I do wonder if at the same time, by drawing this connection to Rachel, we're being told that Michal maybe has, you know, hidden within her some of the same problems that, that Rachel had. Because this... this some, something of a flaw in Rachel is the same flaw that Shaul has and perhaps maybe the same flaw of Michal. Right? Rachel is not relying fully and totally 100, 1,000% on Hashem. Right? There's something here about some sort of the, the trafim and they've got some sort of power. There's something else in between. Right? It's not as direct. And we see that this problem that Shaul has, that he listens to other things, not, not Hashem. He listens to the people, right? He listens to his own version of Trafim. And that really is why, ultimately, the, the royalty is ripped away from him. Because, right, the, the most powerful Meshachachma, we learned this uh, when we talked about Shaul. To me, I, I can't forget. It's just the most amazing thing where he goes through the words that, that, where it says that it wasn't, that the problem was not that Shaul had Rachamim on Amalek. We, don't, we didn't judge, he's not being judged for his emotions, that it was hard, that it was painful. Um, there's a different word that's used there in the Navi, which implies intellect. 
that he intellectually decided this didn't make sense, what God told him. He had different sources of information that he was using, different sources of authority that he chose to listen to instead of Hashem. That there, was, there were others, right? It wasn't purely emotional. Emotional, we can't blame him. Any good person, you know, killing a malek, I would assume that if we had to go kill a malek and we had to kill the babies and whatever, we'd all feel we'd be vomiting, I would assume, right? But that, that's not an issue, right? We're human beings. That means that we're Rachmanim. That's good. The problem with Shaul was that he was listening to another source of authority. And that, and that ultimately is the problem with, with Rachel as well. You know, she does not go to tefillah directly and cr- truly cry out from the bottom of her heart. There are several stages that she goes through before ultimately she gets through all of this, and finally she's able to cry out to Hashem in tefillah. Right? She also struggles with this issue. Right? And one could argue that perhaps the, the people of Shaul that, that, of today, that, that this sort of represents the people who are more secular, who doesn't mean that they don't believe in Hashem, and God forbid. It just means that there may be some other things along that they're listening to as well. And ultimately, you know, it'll take time, you know, till the day comes when everybody, we're all capable of hearing Hashem's voice directly and following it directly. But it means that there's, you know, for all their greatness, and there is greatness in the world of Shaul, it's not purely, you know, a direct relationship with Hashem. And what do we know about David HaMelech? That is his calling card. That is his greatness. It is that, right? And we'll see it over and over and over again, whether he's doing the right thing or whether he's sinning. Everything is direct to Hashem. There's no, nothing else, right? I, I'm wrong, God. I, I sinned, or I'm lost. I need you. Tell me what to do. We're about to have an army overwhelm us and kill us. Hashem, what do I do now? Right? He never goes anywhere else. Right? He's, there's a real distinction here between the two. And I, I think that maybe that's the, the hint that we're getting with the Trafim. Because there, there has to be something that we're learning from the Trafim. Remember where I read it, but I did read it that Rachel stole the trafim because she thought that she wanted to keep them. She thought they would help her have children. Interesting. And Michal didn't have children yet. Maybe she. And that, but that only strengthens the point, right? Which is that Michal, as we talked, uh, sorry, Rachel, when we talked about this back in Sefer Shoftim, that Rachel went through many stages. Instead, right, Yaakov was like, talk to God, right? Talk to God. And Leah the mother of Yehuda, the mother of David HaMelech, right? She's, she's the first person who, who truly thanks Hashem. She's, she's, much, she's much more direct in terms of calling out to Hashem. The moment she stops having children, she davens to God for more, right? Immediate. She has that immediate relationship with Hashem that, that, that we see with her great-great-grandson, David HaMelech, as well. Um, but this is, but I, clearly this is not the pshat, right? The, the terafim, it's hard to imagine that David and Michal had shrunken, shriveled, creepy heads in their house. So Abarbanel, number 17, so he says, trafim, Yonatan uh, I'm not sure what that means. And there are those, right, like what we just said, who, who say that these trafim were the same trafim of Lavan, and that they actually did have trafim of Avodazara in their house. But says the Abarbanel, but that's very strange to me. Right, it's hard to imagine there would be anything even close or any whiff of idolatry in the house of David. Right, I think he, he says it's more the, the Ferris Bueller explanation, right? That it's like a, it was like a dummy, 
right? Mehem na asim lavodazara, mehem la, right? So, so some people could use those for a vodazara. Sometimes they'd have them, you know, like a form of a well-known person, right? I, I remember that TV show, Saved by the Bell. Anybody remember that, that TV show? The wrong generation. Okay, forget. They had the whole, you know, the, one of the guys there had the girl that he had a crush on. He had like a whole, he had like a cut, a full, like life-size cardboard cutout of her, like that he kept in his room. But that's what he's saying. That, that's what this is, that... That the trafim, so some people use them for idolatrous purposes, but they were ultimately innocent. They didn't have to, meaning they're not like shrunk and shriveled heads, but rather um, they, they, were, they would have a tzura of, of a person. They would, they would look like a person. And women would make, you know, images of their husbands because I guess maybe the husbands would be away a lot, right? But so kadeshi yetamid because they wanted to be able to see their picture all the time. Now, they didn't have pictures back then. Um, maybe they had paintings, but I guess they, had, I guess they made like a, a stand-up image in the house of, of their husband, which is kind of interesting. Um, and not necessarily, it doesn't sound necessarily so halakhically correct. Um, we're not supposed to be making images like that. But nevertheless, So this, something, it's a, little, a lot more innocent than this seems to be much more likely to be true because she loved David so much. Um, but I still think that we can draw that connection and, uh, between, you know, look, there's greatness in Rachel. Rachel imenu. Rachel mevakal bana. Right? She's crying for her children. She's, uh, Rachel's davening for us. But at the same time, Rachel was not perfect. So, I, I thought it was a very, very interesting connection. Now, what happens next is really, really fascinating. And I'll be honest that it's like one of these kinds of things that, that if you just, you know, we're reading Safer Shmuel quickly, you'd read right over it and not realize how significant it is. But we're, we're coming now to a tremendously important moment, which is, right, the, the re- reunification of David and Shmuel, right? And the last time that we're going to meet Shmuel in Sefer Shmuel while he's still alive, right? This is it, right? What happens? And it's also very mysterious. Number 18, David flees and he escapes. And he comes to Shmuel in Ramah. And he tells him everything that Shaul had done to him. Probably took a while, right? Did a lot of things to him. And then he and Shmuel went by Yeshvu Binayot. Okay, they went and they sat in Nayot. So what's confusing about this Pasuk? He goes and he meets him in Ramah, but why can't you just sit in Ramah and talk, right? And then they go to, right, Nayot. What's that about? We're not told. And then, Shaul finds out that David, he named David bin Nayot Barama. He's in Nayot in Ramah. Huh? Now, is that the same place? Or Nayot is a place inside of Ramah? Like, what's going on? What is happening here? Right? Very, very, very confusing, right? We can only imagine, right, what's going on here, right? That, that the emotions of David. What, is, what, what, what questions might he have for, for, uh, for Shmuel? What is going on? <laughs> supposed to be the appointed one. You anointed me. I, I don't know. I might be angry at Shmuel. <laughs> you anointed me. You put a tart on my bed. This was not part of the plan. <laughs> Maybe it was. I didn't know, right? I had no, you never told me anything. You just anointed me and left. What's going on, right? Why do you anoint me while Shaul's still king? Right? You know, when am I supposed to become king? Is that ever going to happen? It looks like I'm about to be dead, right? 
And if I'm meant to become king, you know, why am I becoming, you know, ancient Israel's version of America's most wanted? Like, like, what, like what, what's going on here? Right? I imagine he had a lot of questions. A lot of questions. But again, we're, we're not told any of the emotion. It's just, just incredible, right? Like, you have, to, you have to pause and think about, like, what must he have felt at this moment? Says Abarbanel. He tells him about all the four different ways, the times that Shaul tried to kill him. But now there's another point here. It's not just, what did you do this to me for? Hey, Shmuel, you anointed this lunatic who's trying to kill me. You anointed him. How could this be, right? Meaning, if he was just a king who took power on his own, David probably wouldn't have so many questions. There are an untold number of horrible kings in history. So the fact that this king is jealous and wants to kill him, what's the big deal, right? I mean, at least philosophically, it wouldn't, I mean, practically he'd be running, but philosophically he'd understand it. But you anointed him, you, the Navi of Hashem. And now you also anointed me. Like, what, am I going to be like that guy? Right? What's going to happen? If I survive, am I going to turn it to him? Right, he's a navi of God. So first of all, he wanted to yell, right, cry out about what Shaul was doing, right. I guess who else could he cry out to, right? I mean, to, it's your fault, Shmuel. But then, after the first stage, right, the stages of grief, right, then he wants advice and comfort, right. I Meaning, he's about to enter a really dark period of his life that goes on. For the rest of Sefer, of Sefer Shmuel Aleph, for the rest of Shmuel Aleph, until Sha- uh, Shaul and Yonatan die in battle, right? This is, this is his life. There are many chapters to go. Right? We have a lot of, a lot of classes, I'm sure, to, to do on that. Um, and he wants to know, and tell me what's going to be in the future. What will happen? How am I going to escape? Right? David is a believer. So if you're a believer like David, then of course you're going to run to Shmuel. Where else would you run? Right? You have so many questions and you believe the answers are going to come from Hashem. Right? Because, right, between his circumstance and his belief, the only place where he could go is Shmuel. But, but really, the question is, what do they talk about? Right? We're not given any details on their conversation. Right? This might be the most frustrating few psukim in all of Sefer Shmuel. I, I mean, don't you want to know what they said? <laughs> the last time Shmuel appears in his, in his own book, right? the last time, the Navi with David, the two, of the, great, the two greatest people of the generation, two of the greatest Jews of all time, finally have a, their one and only conversation. The first time, there was no conversation. He was a kid, he gets anointed, and Shmuel leaves. The one and only conversation, and we're told... Nothing. It's like a toe in the Pope. Big meeting and no one knows what they said. Right? This is crazy. <laughs> right? It's so frustrating. Right? And Shmuel knows. He was the one in the conversation. He could have told us. So why didn't he? What's going on here? Right? I mean, I, I, I don't Once like, it hit me, what was happening here, it was extremely frustrating. Right? Don't you want to know? So fortunately for us, Chazal tell us a lot. Right? About what they believe Shmuel and David spoke about. So if you look at number 20, Rashi says that they met in Nayot, meaning the Targum of Nayot, it's not an actual place, but rather it's a Beit Ulpana, right? That it was, this became a class, okay? They studied together. 
they were learning Torah together. Fascinating. So what, what kind of Torah do you think they learned? Like an ox fell into a hole? Like were they learning Bavakama? Like what were they learning? Right? Aren't you curious? Like what did they learn? So Vayishvubanayot. So then the Ralbag says, right, because there Nayot was known as Beit Midrash Lenevi'im. That gets even better. Right? This is the Beit Medrash, not for the regular people, for the people who are becoming prophets. Um, take a look at number 22, Yalkut Shemoni. I accidentally flipped, so start with the second line. That night that David ran from Shaul, He learned in one night from Shmuel what a, a great student would not normally learn in a hundred years. Right, more went down on this night. This is a pretty consequential night. Right, we know that the night, the night before was the most consequential night of Michal's life. Right? This is another incredibly consequential night in the history of, of, of Torah Judaism. What, what's happening here? So we won't read the whole Gemara, but just to give a little bit of a sense. Um, number 23, the Gemara in Zvachim. What could they possibly have been learning at this incredibly dangerous and stressful time as Shaul is immediately finding out where he goes and is about to chase him down to try to kill him? So they're going to sit down and learn Gemara? Like, what are they learning? Right, so What's going on with these two places that don't... What is this about? Rama was the actual place. And the word Nayot is a hint. Right, they were, and they were involved in, with the glory of the world. What is the glory of the world? It becomes clear in the rest of the next few lines of the Gemara. What is the most glorious place on earth? The, the Beit HaMikdash in Yerushalayim. But at this point, there, Yerushalayim is not a Jewish city. There's no Beit HaMikdash, there's, right? So there, there are oskin in where, what's going to be? Where is this place going to be? Where will the Beit HaMikdash be? Right? So Amri Ketiv, Vekamta Velita Ala Makom, right? So it talks about Makom, right? Melamed Shebeit HaMikdash Gavoa Mikol Eretz Yisrael, so we learned the Beit HaMikdash is higher than the rest of Eretz Yisrael, but it's not really true, because then we also know that it's, that it's supposed to be, the Pasuk says, like between two shoulders, Beng Tefav Shachain. I'm not going to go through the whole Gemara, because we don't have time for it, but you can read through it as well, but that it's supposed to be in a place where it's like with two mountains on the other side of it, right? Harze Tim overlooks, overlooks the Beit HaMikdash, the Temple Mount, right? So the Mount of Olives, right? So it's sort of like two shoulders, and then in between, is this head, right, is the, is the, is the Beit HaMikdash. So they go through all the psukim. You know, Yaakov Avinu's blessing to Binyamin, right, Which, because we know that it's going to be in the territory of Binyamin, and also on, in Yehuda as well. It's on the border between the two. So this is what they're learning, together trying to figure it out which hill, where is it supposed to be? Isn't that fascinating? Fascinating, right? Um, and Rashi says it very explicitly. Limtso in the next page, number twenty-four. Limtso They wanted to know what is the place that the Torah is telling us will be the future home of the Beit Habechira, which is the Beit Hamikdash. Right? Fascinating stuff. Medr Shmuel. I just found, kept looking for as many things as I could about what about this. It's like fascinating. Rabbi Yirmiya v'Shem Rabbi Shmuel bar Rabbi Yitzchak Megillat Beit Hamikdash Shemasara Kadosh Baruch Hu LeMoshe BaAmida. Right, so Hashem gave a Megillah, like a sense, I don't know if it's a physical scroll or the scroll of, uh, of knowledge of, of the Beit HaMikdash to Moshe. Moshe gave that knowledge over to Yoshua. 
Amad Yoshua Masra the Zakanim Ba'amida. And Yeshua gave it to the Zakanim. Zakanim Masrua le Nevi'im Ba'amida. The Nevi'im, right? Who are the Nevi'im? Who are Masrua le David Ba'amida? It was Shmuel, right? He's the Navi. He's the only Navi that, that we find that David speaks to at this point. Amad David Masra le Shlomo Beno Ba'amida. So whether they figured it out together or Shmuel taught David, one way or another, this, this knowledge is transferred and is clarified on this, on this glorious night, right? In the middle, in the, it's such a dangerous, at a dangerous time, right? So, so it says in Bamid Baraba, Halacha, right? Just, and this is fascinating, it's a little bit different. How many strings were there on the harp that the Levim would play on in the Beit HaMikdash? Rabbi Yehuda says, Sheva Nimin, that there were seven, and then in the future there'll be ten. This is hinted to already, this is in the, um, in Mizmor Shir Yom HaShabbos, right? After the first couple of famous psukim, there's all sorts of stuff about ten, and right, there's all sorts of hints to this future kinor, this future harp that will have ten strings. Clearly a lot of deep Kabbalistic Torah on the seven to the ten, right? Shenemar Elohim Shir Chadash Ashir Lach Benevel Asor, Umihit Kinlahem, and who decided this? Shmuel the David. So without getting into the details, meaning they talked all sorts, all sorts of things, Beit HaMikdash, right, on that night. From the, key, from the place to the Kinor, right, it was a night that was focused on the Beit HaMikdash and the Avoda there, everything. That, that's what happened. So, I, I don't know, just to pause for a moment, this is a, this is a well-known Gemara, and we could probably quote it again many times over the course of the coming, you know, many, God willing, many shiurim on this topic. But uh, this is about David when he's Mizmurla David Bavarchomi Pnei Avshalom Bano. There's a miz, uh, the, the song of David as he's running away from Avshalom. So the Gemara asks, what do you mean a song of David? His son is chasing him to kill him. It should be a kina le David. It should be a lamentation for David. Your son is chasing you. You've just, right, he's just slept with all of your wives right, your, your concubines, right, he's trying to kill you, and you're running away with a small group of people to try to save your skin, not looking good, right, and your son is doing it, and yet it's, it's a song, right, only, only David could sing a song at such a time, so how could it be, right, so this is after the sin of Bathsheba, and David, so the Gemara says that David thought that, uh, you know, that maybe he'd be some sort of slave, you know, he knew he was going to get punished, because he deserved it, but, but he thought maybe he'd be a slave or, or, some, or a bamzer who would come after him. Now that he sees that it's Avshalom, his son, and they had such a loving relationship at one point that, oh, hopefully he'll have mercy upon me. And for that, for that I should be Mizmor le David, right? I mean, that's crazy. But I think on a big picture, what does it tell us? David had a presence of mind that, that, uh, that, that, is, that this, is his, this is his lofty, saintly quality. In many ways, he's a man, and that's why we find him so incredible, so relatable, why, we can, why his Tehillim matter so much for us. People who are too saintly, too perfect, and they're not, you know, they, it's hard for us to relate to them. But someone like David, he's a, he's a man, he's just a great man, right? And, he, and his, so his Tehillim, we feel that they speak for us. But in this way, I think in particular, David is, is almost like not a man. This is like where he turns into a saint, which is that even during the darkest times, he's somehow able to maintain his presence of mind, right? Somehow, in the worst moments, he's able to maintain it and, and because of his relationship with Hashem, right? His relationship with Hashem doesn't save him from, from, from having Yetzir Hara, but somehow, right, it, he's able to remain centered with God at all moments, at all times. And, and that's what's happening here. 
Shaul is about to kill him, and he's coming after him. He should be running, staying on the move, right? I remember from Harrison Ford and The Fugitive, right? I, mean, I have to go back and watch that again to get ready for the coming, for the coming several you know, classes, right? This, is, I, uh, this summer, God willing, I'll watch it again, right? I mean, you've got to keep moving because they're, they're coming after you, and they have the resources. And yet he stops and he hangs out with Shmuel. And they're oskin benoyo shal olam. And they're involved in the holiest of the most glorious you know, topics on earth, the Beis HaMikdash. Right? The Beis HaMikdash is the ultimate purpose of life, of humanity, of, uh, on this world, right? The day will come, where finally all the nations, all the Gentiles, will be learning Torah from us in the Beit HaMikdash. Right? That's the ultimate goal. So as his life hangs in the balance, David is able to somehow remember the ultimate goal. Right? I mean, I don't know, I can't remember the ultimate goal right? Most of my life, right? You get frustrated. I'm, I'm running to work. I mean, you know, you're saying all these things that are happening. I'm making my, you know, the, the, the little mini stresses that happen every single day of our lives. And so, okay, for most normal people, we come back to that during hopefully three times a day while we're davening. And we talk about Yerushalayim Ircha, Etzemach David Avdecha, Behirat Tatzmiach. And so we come back and hopefully have a few moments each day where we, where we think of these lofty things, right? That's the Iker. That's the main part of Shemana Esrei. Not the beginning where we ask for things, right? For lower things. The main thing is that I should remember my purpose of existence and why I'm here. That we're all part of this incredible big picture to try to bring, to bring the base of Mikdash. Um, but, but David didn't need Shemona Esrei three times a day. Because even in the darkest moments for himself, when he's under incredible pressure, he's able to remember it. I, to me, that it's part of the greatness of David Amelech that, uh, that cannot, be, cannot be overlooked. You know, and, I, and, and in our times, right, in particular, these times of the birth pangs of redemption, when we're going through a lot of bumps in the road, I think that's part of our job, is to be like David HaMelech, right? That we are meant to, we have to tr- try to somehow keep our eye on the ultimate goal. We saw that this is possible. When did we see that this was possible? Over this past month. We saw Rabbi Leo D, right, our neighbor. I don't, the things that he was talking about, he talked about redemption and the nation and our goals as a people during Shiva, right? It's not, that was not normal. That was a, that was a David HaMelech moment, right? I think that was one of the most striking things that I found. Like, how are you talking about these things? I talk about them in Shiurim because, you know, I'm focused, I'm giving a shir. We come together, we sit there. You're sitting here at the worst moment of your life and he's able to speak this way. I, I, I mean, it was, it's superhuman quality. That that's, those are thoughts that even entered his mind. And, and that's a quality of David HaMelech. Right? That's the quality of David Amelech. So that was a, a big, it hit me sitting there at the Shiva house when he started talking about those things. I think he did it many times. I happened to be there for one of them. But, but it was, it was um, I don't know, it bowled me over. It bowled me over. But then, then comes Shaul. Shaul is chasing, right? Number 30. And you'll see here over and over again, what, right? I highlighted it. Malachim, Malachim, Malachim. He sends messengers to get David um, so here's the thing. You know, he sends a squadron of soldiers to go get David, but the moment they come within a radius of Shmuel, who's such a light of Hashem, he's such a prophet. Remember, he opened up the whole gates of prophecy for everybody. The moment they came within a, a few feet of, you know, or, or who knows how far they were from Shmuel, all of them started having Ruach HaKodesh. So nobody was going to go arrest, right? It's crazy. And then he does it again. He sends another group. It's the same thing. 
Uh, and, they, and then they also have nevuah. And then he does that a third time. And they also have nevuah. I mean, when are you going to give up? Does this remind you of a story in the, in the Gemara? It was uh, Unkelos. Right? Unkelos was a convert. I write it was Unkelos, I think. It was Unkelos was a convert. And, uh, and he was what, like the son of the emperor, right? He, or he was the nephew, the nephew of the emperor. The emperor kept sending soldiers. But then Unkelos would talk to them and convince them, and they would all convert to Judaism. Right? And then he'd send more soldiers, right? Same idea. I mean, it's an amazing, it's an amazing story. So now, Vayelef kam hu haramata. So Shaul himself goes. Three sets of soldiers came, and they ended up dying. He sent one group. They died. There's another Where else in Tanakh? I know. Well, I since know, I'm, since I only started learning Tanakh at the age of forty, I'm still to begin. I'm just beginning. <laughs> ah, very good. Sending messengers. Very, very good. Exactly. So they keep sending messengers. Um, and actually, there's a similarity here. So, what's with the significance of the word malachim? Right. When you're doing something bad, right, you send messengers, right. And uh, we find later on when when uh, when David Amelech sends for Bathsheba. Also not appropriate. Not a good moment for David HaMelech. What does he do? Vaishlach David to look to Vaishlach he sends others to do his work for him. Vaishlach David Malachim. Right? Also not a good not a good moment when you can't go yourself. You don't feel right. If there's there's a problem there. Um, there's it's a reflection that there's something inappropriate. Um, so then you know so Shaul himself goes. But what happens? So he gets to Nayot Baramava to Hialav Gamhu Ruach Elokim. Not shocking. Right. He also now gets prophecy. Right, and he comes and he's prophesied once he's in that radius. And he takes off his clothing. Then he also prophesies before Shmuel. He lays down naked the whole day. That whole day and that whole night. And so they, remember, this is, we talked about the first time when he was first becoming king. Agam Shaul, is Shaul also a prophet? Or he had prophecy. Now, and he's taking off his clothing. I mean, this is weird stuff, right? Weird. And what's amazing here is that, I don't know, like I totally had, when I was younger, just like blew right through these pages, these psukim. Everybody, they're all taking off their clothing, right? They're all, and having prophecy. But it's, but it's, but we only, it's only, we're only told that with Shaul, right? There's something significant with Shaul that he takes off his clothing. So really, really fascinating. Really, really, really fascinating. So there's a web of prophecy. The Alshech says, Shmuel was like a great light. Right? He was like a, like the sun in, in, in the middle of the day blazing. Remember, at the beginning of Sefer Shmuel, there, is no, there was no prophecy, there was no vision. And then Shmuel comes, and there is chazon nifratz. It goes from a time of no prophecy, of great confusion, to Shmuel ushers in an era that's directly the opposite. Right? And, then, and so all of these other people get prophecy because of him. And the Barbanel says that this is like similar to what happened with, uh, with Eldad and Medad, um, that with the Shivim Zekanim, that they were around Moshe Rabbeinu and they started getting prophecy, right? Because of Moshe, right? Moshe v'Aaron, v'cho'anav, u'shmuel Shemo. These are the greatest Jews of all time, right? Who were, they were not just prophets, but they were prophets who were so overwhelmingly bringing God's, 
prophecy to the world that they were that it they were like a, a flame that that, sh- that that lit everybody else on fire all around them. Um, but so why does Shaul take off his clothes? Right? Why does Shaul take off his clothes? No pretenses. Right? What, what is happening here? Um, you know, so no pretenses. I think also we saw, right, the clothing is representative of royalty. Remember, Yonatan takes off his clothing and gives it, right, he, and he gives his me'il to David. So and he's having a moment of prophecy where he finally sees the world clearly. And what is the first thing that he does? Takes off his clothing. Meaning he was wearing royal clothing because he was the king. He takes off his royal clothing at this moment of clarity, right? Which is, which is really, really amazing. Um, so for at least for this moment, he's, he's removing his, his, his arrogance and his anger, right? And, and, he, and he, at this moment, realizes for a brief moment. And the moment goes away, right? As we'll see, because he chases David for the next many chapters, but at least for a brief moment, he has clarity, right, that, these, that this, this clothing will not be his forever, um, that he will, he will have to remove them alongside of his arrogance and his anger. Um, you know, and, and he's reached the crossroads. And, right, this is really Shaul's last chance. Right? Is he going to you know, accept this prophecy and change his attitude and recognize that David is going to be the next king, but do so in a way of, of peace, of calm, Transfer of power ultimately over time. It's his son-in-law, right? I mean, it's not like it's out of his family at this point, right? He could have grandchildren through this man. And so that, that's one option. And the other option, of course, is to go back to the Ruach Ra, to turn away from the Ruach Elohim, to go to the Ruach Ra, the spirit of evil. And sadly, that is the direction that he ultimately goes in. Um, you know, so it, it's, it's really, really an amazing, an amazing moment. Um, but I want to finish here with, with the teaching that I found from Rabbi Eliezer Kashtiel. He's a modern writer, um, one, and he's, he's amazing. His commentary on Shmuel. If you look at number 34, I found this, uh, this to be really, really something. This whole scene with Shmuel, David, Shaul, what's happening here? What are they learning? The Beis HaMikdash, how is this all going to play out, right? All the big questions are happening here, and we're not told what they are. So let's read this together. It's just incredible. He says, We can explain that what's really happening here in a deeper sense. David, Hivin, David understood that if he's being chased by Shaul, right? remember this is all about Shevet Binyamin. That, that was what the Gemara said. Like, where, where's the base of Mikdash going to be? He's confused. Right? Why am I being chased by Shaul, the king, who is the, rep- the ultimate representative of Shevet Binyamin? It's a sign that there's like an unresolved problem when it comes to this tribe of Binyamin. It doesn't occur to him, God forbid, to even hurt Shaul. Even to protect himself. But together with Shmuel, together with Shmuel, he's trying to understand this process what will be with Shevet Binyamin, with Shaul? What does this all mean? What is God's plan? The purpose of Shaul is to lay the groundwork for the Shechina to come down, God's presence to come down to Israel. In order to end his chasing of David, 
Right, we have to educate. David and Shmuel say we've got to educate Shaul so that he understands what his role is. Yes, you may not be destined to be king forever, but you have a critical role, Shaul. You're important, right? It's so tragic. Just, just because you're not going to be the king, it doesn't mean that you're not essential, right? You are the Natsig of Shevet bin Yamina, Shevet Achalutzi. You are, the, right, the leader, the prince of the pioneering tribe. You see where, where he's going. And think about our own times. What's interesting is when, if you go back to when he anoints Shaul, right, he then sends him on this prophetic journey, right? He has prophecy and he wanders around the land of Binyamin, right, where the Beis Amikdash is going to be one day, right? There's some, something very deep here beyond just him becoming a temporary king. He needs to see the land because, right, it's specifically the land of Binyamin, which will, will be, right, the foundation upon which the Beit HaMikdash of David and Yehuda will come, right, will rest on the land of Binyamin. Isn't that fascinating? It's, it's Solomon's house, Mashiach ben David, but it's in, on the land of Binyamin. Right? This is one of the most, I mean, Rabbi Kashtil says brilliant things. This is one of the most amazing I've ever read. He says, Kol ma'asim Yisrael. Right? These are all tied together to how the Shechina will come down uh, in, to, to Am Yisrael. They're trying to, right? They want Shaul to come to them. David's not running away because he went to Shmuel to wait for, right, together to, to draw Shaul to them, to overwhelm him with prophecy, and so that hopefully he can join them. They would be the three, right, that cannot be broken. Can you imagine Shmuel, David, and Shaul all working together? Unbelievable. It would have been the fixing for Shaul, for all of his sins with Amalek and all of that. He could have made it up. He could have fixed it together. Right, Shaul, Sholeich, Malachim, he sends messengers, but... And they keep having prophecy. Until Shaul be'atzmo. Right? They weren't going to stop. Shmuel was, was going to get rid of all these messengers. Right? Until Shaul came. Because that was the point. They wanted to arouse him. To, and to inspire him. To, his, to, to really what would be his, his true tafkid in life. His purpose. His goal. Instead of fighting with David. Right, he's needed to, to pave the way to the base of Mikdash. Right, right, because Shevet Ben Yamin, Shaul himself is so personally holy. Right, he, remember, he, he, was not the, he, he didn't bring holiness to the nation, but he himself, the Shevet Ben Yamin, was so close to God. That's what Yaakov says about Shevet Ben Yamin. And that should, right, and he could have done it. They could have together brought the base of Mikdash in that way. And maybe that would have been more lasting and permanent for all time. And when you think about what that means for our time, this theme that we come, keep coming back to, the tension between the world of David that we are living in and the world of Shaul, of Tel Aviv, right? It, we, we desperately need them. They are, it's not just that, okay, they, you guys played part one and now you're done. Now we're going to take over, okay? Thank you. We really appreciate you, you know, and your grandparents getting malaria and draining all the swamps. We really appreciate it. Now it's time for you guys to be done, and it's our time. That's not the approach. That's not the attitude, right? They are essential, right? It has to be built upon everything that they're doing. 
Only there can the base of Mikdash be built. And you think about it in modern terms, right? It, this is, right, it, we cannot build a base of Mikdash, you know, without Shaul and that world of Tel Aviv, the world of strength, the world of wealth and prestige and technology and all of those things are essential. And in the Shabbos year, we were talking about that this was the problem with Chizkiah, that Chizkiah didn't grasp it. He only was machshiv. He only valued the world of David, of Torah learning, right? But not the glory of the nation upon which the Beis HaMikdash can be built. Until the people of Israel have a strong and powerful army, until we are respected all across the world for our wisdom and for our strength and for everything that we bring to the world, and in particular our Torah, all of it, only then can the Beis HaMikdash come on top of all of that Right? And, and be the place where everybody wants to come and to learn from. Will be the obvious place. Not some Nebuch place, right? Where, where, where there's bad air conditioning, like a third world country. You know what I'm saying? That you can't be. You can't be. We need Shaul, the people of Shaul and the people of Tel Aviv to work together with us and to be the foundation upon which the base of Mikdash will be built. So, God willing, the second time around, you know, we'll have Yonatan and, you know, and, and he'll, he'll do the fixing for his father, Shaul. Um, so, with this, we say goodbye to, to Shmuel, at least in his lifetime. Um, and seriously, not a bad moment to, to leave, to, right, to, to go all walk off the stage with, if you think about it, right? This is a pretty awesome moment, and this is Shmuel's final moment in his holy book. All right, God willing, we'll continue and finish uh, this little mini-series next week.